If you'll turn in your Bible, or we'll show it on the screen, our text is 1 John chapter 2, two verses from John's first letter. Reading from the English Standard Version. I think a year ago I spoke from the New American Standard Bible and was almost run out of town on a rail, so I thought I'd better get the English Standard Version. Yes. My little grandson is with us. This is, he's 10, his first time in England. He says, you know, he said to his dad, the great thing about Americans, they don't have accents. Yeah. John wrote to the church, he said, Behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given us as our teacher and as our guide. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will lead us into all the truth, that we have no need of a man to teach us, for you will teach us all things. Holy Spirit, we trust that you will open our hearts and reveal Jesus in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Next month, I'll celebrate my 47th anniversary as a follower of Christ. I was two. (laughs) I was raised in a devout Roman Catholic family, but something just didn't ring true for me. By my late high school years, I was fairly skeptical, and I started university as a self-professed agnostic. But I used to go to Bible studies in my dorm, primarily to talk people out of the gospel, and I was pretty good. But you know, if you hang around a slippery creek bank too long, sooner or later you're going to fall in. (laughs) And on July 11th, 1976, Jesus opened my heart and he saved me. I was saved that night, water baptized that night and filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, right there. That's how it should be. I remember walking to campus the next day, 
And it was like the world had changed. There was something different. It's like there was a glow. The colors seemed brighter and more saturated. And I could just take a deep breath. God's peace was upon me. This is amazing. That lasted about two weeks. And then Operation Sanctification kicked in. That's that lifelong process where God works to make us like Jesus, mostly through pain. Suffering, difficulty, challenge. And I realized quickly that I was in a fight. And for 47 years, the fight has continued. And it, it doesn't seem to let up. And there's no indication that it will. There's a constant pressure in this fight that we're in. And the question is, how do we stay strong in the fight? How do we keep strong and resist life's tendency to beat us down? Have you ever experienced that? Do you know something about that kind of continual, unrelenting pressure. John has some answers for us in this text on how we can walk victoriously in the midst of the horrific battle that we're in. John wrote this letter from Ephesus I visited Ephesus last year, quite an amazing experience, walking the streets. John lived or taken to what they thought was possibly his home, doubtful, nice to think about it anyway. In the Colosseum, where there was a massive riot, it's still there, you can stand at the bottom, and 25,000 people could fill it. And you can experience what it was like. 90 A.D., probably, this letter's written. It's been 60 years since the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Imagine all the things John has seen in 60 years. He was there at Pentecost, saw that amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the greatest revival in the history of the church. It's not likely he was in Ephesus in the early to mid-50s when there was another revival there. Luke tells us that because of this revival, all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord. That's pretty significant, isn't it? 
from one community, the gospel went out and spread, and everybody in Asia Minor was exposed to the testimony of the Lord. But that had been 35 years ago when John wrote this letter. What's left of the revival? Probably just prior to this, John's been on Patmos, and Jesus had a letter for Ephesus. He had something to say to them. This church that had had this major revival, he said, I know your deeds. Gives this massive list of all the powerful things in the church, and then this one haunting statement, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Repent and do the works you did at first or I'm coming and I'll remove your lampstand. I've been in Ephesus. The lampstand is gone. It's been gone at least 1,500 years for probably more than that. The battle is still raging 60 years we would have thought Christ would have come back, this revival would have spread throughout the world, but instead there's a raging battle and a continual fight. And what does John have to say to address that? Theologians call what we see in this text the already not yet tension. Have you heard that expression before? Already, but not yet. John says, the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. He couldn't say, the darkness has passed away. It was still there. Is passing away. And the true light is shining. These are present participles, which means they're always in the continuous tense. John wrote that, 90 AD, said the darkness is passing away. In 2023, it's still true. The darkness is passing away, and the true light has come. Let's see if we can understand this from a diagram. Nathan, this is your big moment. Yes, my brother. Man, you did not disappoint. This is the Old Testament view. The, the Jews believed in the present age that they were in, but a Messiah would come. And when Messiah comes, the new age would come. Everybody's waiting for the new age when Messiah comes. But as the Old Testament progresses, this picture of the Messiah begins to change. And we, we see two versions of a Messiah. One, he comes as his conquering king. But then we start to see this picture of him as a suffering servant. And how do we understand that? Well, it takes the New Testament. Click. Oh, almost missed it right there. This is the New Testament view because Messiah comes twice. 
So the present age started at the fall of man, and it goes all the way till the second return. But at the same time, the kingdom has come. It came when Messiah came. And it will continue until he returns and then throughout all eternity. The challenge is, Nathan, is right now we live in the middle. You see that section where the present age and the age to come overlap? That's where we are right now. So the kingdom has come fully, already, but not yet. Not yet. There's a battle. This is life in the middle. That's where we live. In the middle. Life in the middle is a total war. I've been studying a lot about warfare. Augustine, 5th century A.D., first began to discuss the idea of a just war or a limited war. And these principles carried on for many hundreds of years. In contrast to a limited war, we have what we see probably starting, although there were signs of it before, uh, the 20th century, total war. You see, in, in total war, the goal of total war is to destroy the enemy beyond recovery. In total war, the goal is not an end of hostilities. It's not reconciliation. It's not peace. It's annihilation. That's life in the middle. Total warfare. We're not looking for a negotiated peace, a reconciliation with the enemy. We are in total war. In total war, there's no limitations. There's no distinction between soldiers and civilians. It's all out total war. When we look at this text, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. There's at least three implications. Three implications we can draw from this text. Number one, very simple. Warfare is constant. Warfare is constant. We never stop fighting. There are no holidays in life in the middle. It's a constant, continuous battle. At birth, and especially at the new birth, we're dropped into a war zone. And the battle's raging everywhere. One of my children gave me a book for Christmas a couple years ago called The Splendid and the Vile, written by a best-selling author, Eric Lawson. He moved to New York City, and, and he realized in living in New York City that the experience of residents, people who lived there, 
of the 9-11 bombing was totally different than the experience of those of us who witnessed it on television. And he began to wonder as a historian, what was it like to live in London during the Blitz? And so this book covers the first year of Churchill's premiership, especially concentrating on London and life with a constant threat of death, lingering at any moment. What was it like? The fascinating thing about his book is that the, the UK government encouraged citizens to keep diaries of their war experience. So there's this massive set of research of what historians call primary source documents of people's personal experiences of the war and drawing from all of these personal experience. He creates, it's a historical book, but it reads like a novel. What's it like living in London during the Blitz? Nine-month period, over 44,000 citizens in the nation were killed, most of them in London themselves. 57 consecutive nights of bombing. That's total war there. That's the life that we live in the middle. Constant war. There are bombs exploding constantly. This warfare is so extensive because there's so many enemies. We fight against, first of all, an anti-Christ world system, don't we? We see the evidence of that almost every week, the increase of an anti-Christ, not neutral towards Christ, but anti-Christ worldview, constant, consistent. If that was the only battle, it wouldn't be quite as bad. But we fight against a nature, our own nature, that is only partially sanctified. Do you understand what I'm talking about? If I could, I would have three cream teas every day. And my office in Nashville, director of operations who reports to me, she put on my board a countdown for our holiday here. <laughs> Instead of days to the UK, it was days to a cream tea. <laughs> and every day it would count down. Now I must confess, and this is important, I had a conversion experience yesterday. I did, I'm sorry. We were in Dunster. I ordered a, a cream tea. And the waitress, Wendy, she told me, because we're not in Devon or Cornwall, so she said, in Somerset, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> That's what she said. 
but there was a more powerful force at work. <laughs> Miss Hannah, Devonshire girl, said that's the only way to do it. And she is right. I'm just sorry to say. So a new convert, Devonshire cream tea, the only way to do it. You can have a different opinion. That's okay if you want to be wrong the rest of your life. The flesh always wants an extra piece of pie. It always would prefer to take a nap rather than exercise. It's the wrong time for an amen, Dan. <laughs> Work with me here now. So we got the world system. We've got our own unsanctified flesh. And then we got the demonic world. Let's not forget them. It's a, it's a continual force pushing against us. I was born and then raised up till 22 in towns either right on the Mississippi River or very close to it. The Mississippi River system is the fourth largest river system in the world. It's massive. To give you an example, if you started in Land's End and you drove to John O'Groats and then turned around and went back to Land's End, and then turned and went back to John O'Groats, and then went back to Land's End, you would be at the top of the Lake District before you hit the length of the Mississippi River system. It's massive. The largest point at a normal non-flood stage, it's 11 miles across. You stand on the bank, you can't see the shore. It's like you're at the ocean. And during the tragic flood of 1927 at a place near Vicksburg, the river swelled to almost 80 miles wide. You imagine that kind of force. My university town was right on the river and you could walk to the downtown and they had the floodgates there. And there was a big flood one of the years I was there. I was able to get in and see this mighty force before they had to close the walls. And it's, it's astonishing. And you think when you look at it, it's real easy to go downstream. But it looks so hard to go upstream or to even hold your ground. And that's life in the middle. There's a continual force pushing us downstream and it takes a continual fight just to hold our ground, yet alone to make progress. Warfare is constant and a negotiated peace, it's unacceptable. We watched recently the movie, The Munich Agreement. 
background of the supposed treaty 1938 between Germany and the UK was World War I, a horrific battle, supposedly the war to end all wars. Over a million UK citizens, young men gave their life and the nation was in a panic at Hitler's incursion into so many different nations. It's fascinating when you read about the panic in London especially where they were the most afraid. Massive exodus. Many of the beautiful parks there, they had torn them up building trenches. They even had a plan where they had armed guards stationed at the London Zoo to kill the wild beasts when the bombs dropped and broke open the cages. That's how intense it was. And when Neville Chamberlain came back with that useless piece of paper with the famous words, peace for our time. And within a year, we realized what Churchill was already telling us, that you can't have peace with an enemy committed to your total destruction. That's life in the middle. There's no negotiated peace because our enemy is totally committed to our destruction. So first implication, warfare is constant. We never stop fighting. Number two, Warfare is brutal. We don't win every battle. Doesn't sound like a good faith message, does it? (laughs) Just happens to be the truth. Warfare is brutal and we don't win every battle. Paul tried several times to get to Thessalonica. And he said, one of the faithless statements of the Apostle Paul, at least seemingly, he said, I tried to come, but Satan hindered me. We don't win every battle. He needed to get there, but the devil put a roadblock in his way. We don't win every battle. The last undefeated team in the premiership was the 2003-2004 Arsenal Club. When undefeated, but they lost in the FA Cup and the League Cup. And I have no idea what that means, but I thought it would be a good illustration. Yeah. Woo! Even an undefeated team wasn't undefeated. You don't win every battle. When my two boys were young, I'm thinking it was Christmas 1988. I've been trying to work out the dates. We bought them the Nintendo Entertainment System. The first one, 8-bit. 
Man, that was, that was power. It came with Duck Hunt with his little gun and the first version of the Mario Brothers. Man, we were in some high tech right there. And so we played together, and I was the first one. I saved the princess. And then retired, and have never played a video game since. I went out on top, baby. My grandson lives next door, and he's got this thing, Switch, I think it's called. Switch. And I got the big TV, and I walk, they're playing this game, and I can't even follow it. There are bombs exploding, there are missiles, there's ogres and demons, and, 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 and just constant battle. And then you got this little energy bar, right? Because every time you get hit, man, you take a blow and the energy bar goes down. And then there's various different places you can get new energy and get your energy back up to somehow get through to the next level. We take a breath, get a 10-second break, and then the battle starts all over again. Only this time it's like in the dark or something. <laughs> and I was watching it and I thought, that's life in the middle right there. Bombs, demons, missiles, explosions happening everywhere, and you just take hits. Nobody makes it through without some failure, without loss. And sometimes that produces fatigue Ever been tired of the battle? Sometimes it produces wavering. And sometimes even surrender. But the third implication, remember warfare is constant. We never stop fighting. Warfare is brutal. We don't win every battle. But number three, God always leads us in triumph. He always leads us in triumph. One of the first verses I memorized as a young believer, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. That's a good confession for a 19-year-old man, strong. He's always leading me in triumph. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. It was many years before I would understand the context behind Paul's second letter to the, Thessal to the Corinthians. Well, we call it the second letter. He didn't call it that. It was probably at least his third or fourth the context of 2 Corinthians was written after his time in Ephesus. He refers to his time in Ephesus. He said, when I was in Ephesus, I fought wild beasts. That's not 
referring to actual animals. That's metaphorical. Wild beasts. He tells us about his time in Ephesus, in the beginning of this book. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our afflictions which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Doesn't sound like triumph to me. He continues later in the book, five times I received 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, and Gentiles. Danger in the city, the wilderness, and at sea. Toil, hardship, hunger, thirst, cold, exposure. That doesn't sound like triumph to me. But I didn't quote all the verse. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Our triumph in Christ. Now, if you were examining the life of Christ as a bystander, looking at his life, his ignominious death on a Roman cross, you would not say that was a triumphant life. You would say that is a failure. That is a misguided man. Christ's life looked like anything but triumph. It looked like total defeat on a Roman cross. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But surely he's borne our sickness and carried our pain. Our affliction was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. It didn't look like triumph to the casual observer, but it was total victory, not only for him, but for you and for me. That's the triumph that God leads us in, the triumph of the man of sorrows pain that he endured. But you know, I didn't quote all the text yet either. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us 
the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. What does that mean? That in the victories in life and in the defeats, God is working in us the character of Jesus Christ. And day by day, through the fight, through the pain, through the turmoil, something is growing on the inside of us. This picture of Christ. And more and more, our life is a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. Every battle, won or lost, makes us more like Jesus and more prepared for eventual and total victory. The question for us all, have you lost the will to fight because of the pressure of life in the middle? Where are you right now? Is life beaten you down? Are you fatigued? Have you started to waver and wonder about those promises that felt so sure when they first came? Now it's been, seems so long. Or have you even surrendered? Just a negotiated peace. I won't mess with you, devil. You don't mess with me. And we'll just try to get along. Where are you today? Are you ready to let Jesus re-engage you in this battle? Are you ready to jump back in to the fight? Life in the middle. Are you ready to let him lead you in the triumph that he led Christ?